Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Joshua. And I'm Grayson. The date is June 22nd, 2017. And this is an In Case You Haven't Read It episode on the recent 2016 Wildfires After Action Report. In this episode, we'll be providing an overview of the Provincial Post-Incident Assessment Report on the 2016 Fort McMurray wildfires, which were released earlier this month. We'll highlight all the key points and recommendations. We will also be sharing our analysis of the report and identify what we think the most important takeaways for emergencies managers are. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current Relevant Canadian. Well, a year has passed since the Horse River wildfire, or as it was more commonly known, the 2016 Fort McMurray wildfires, and the rebuilding of communities continues while the attention has shifted towards understanding what happened during the response and how we can improve for the next large event. To this end, we're doing our first ever In Case You Haven't Read It episode, where we review current relevant Canadian critical documents and EM-related reports. Reading it so you don't have to. Today we're reviewing the recent report by AEMA, or the Alberta Emergency Management Agency, on the overall provincial management of this disaster. So the title of this report is the May 2016 Wood Buffalo Wildfire Post-Incident Assessment Report, which is authored by the firm KPMG. Uh, And in this particular case, understanding a little bit about KPMG is important to understanding the overall tone of the report. That's right. Uh, KPMG is a large international accounting and consulting firm. Uh, Most people think of them in terms of audits and that sort of thing, but they've actually completed quite a few reviews on various aspects of other disasters, uh, major ones like 9-11 and Hurricane Sandy, and they've also conducted quite a few forensic audits, such as the Slave Lake wildfire and the BC firestorms in 2003. So this report focuses focused on communication and coordination efforts at the provincial level. But since the province delegated authority uh, to the regional municipality, there's also quite a bit about the municipal response as well. Yeah. So now we know who it's written by, you can begin to guess what this report is and what it is not. So it is an official, uh, an officially commissioned third party report. It's a review of the government of Alberta supporting actions during the 2016 wildfires primarily. But as Josh was saying, there's a bit, a bit of a leak into regional because of the de- delegation of authority that happened. Uh, And it's a review of the high-level regional EOC management and operations, and it is written like an audit. It compares the actions that were taken and the processes that were used to written standards and occasionally what they consider to be best practices used by other jurisdictions. And overall, the objective of the report is to review and provide feedback on provincial and regional preparation, mitigation, response, stabilization, and recovery efforts, with a focus on traditional trouble spots during disasters such as command and control, communications, emergency social services, and engagement with stakeholders. What it is not is the definitive 2016 wildfire document. Uh, It's not a review of firefighting tactics or procedures or any other tactical level actions. And it's not a detailed analysis of individual actions or decisions either. Uh, And lastly, it's not really a review of any of the political or social implications of the disaster. So before we get going, like all other disaster reports, there are a lot of acronyms. So for those not familiar with the Alberta disaster lingo, here, here are a few key terms that are used in this report. The POC, the GOC, the EOC, the REOC. All of the OCs in these stand for Operations Center. So primarily we'll be talking about the Provincial Operations Center, which was in Edmonton and was there to provide support to the region, and the Regional Emergency Operations Center, which was more on-site dealing with uh, the disaster in that locality. 
We'll also be talking about AEMA, which is the Alberta Emergency Management Agency, and ICS, hopefully you're familiar with this one, is the Incident Command System. Any ones I missed, Josh? No, I think that's it. Uh, the, the PIA, uh, or post-incident analysis, is uh, basically like an after-action report. That's right. So if you've read previous post-incident assessments or, or after-action reports, the format of this document will seem pretty similar. It begins with an executive summary, which is a good intro for those if you're in a rush. Then it goes in to explain the format of the assessment and some of the background, which is extremely important because I think it's easy to read this report and be left wanting a little bit more. So here it defines the scope of the report as primarily an assessment of provincial level support actions and a focus on the evacuation and engagement of stakeholders. It also mentions how they get their info. Uh, the review used a mixed methods approach using targeted interviews, focus groups and online surveys, along with primary document reviews. There were over 260 interviews between government, NGOs and private sector organizations uh, that were all involved in the response and recovery efforts. And they organize all of this info into a structure vaguely mimicking the four pillars approach. So throughout the report, we'll be talking in terms of prevention, preparedness, response, stabilization, which is a bit different, and recovery. So most of these terms are familiar, but I think stabilization probably requires a bit more explanation. Yeah, stabilization in this context is basically the time from when the evacuation of the town was completed to the time when it was deemed safe to return. And this phase dealt primarily with providing the conditions necessary within the town for a safe reentry. Then finally, this initial section of the report presents some background on Alberta's experience with fires, which is extensive, uh, as well as on the legislation, the emergency management organizations, and the emergency management processes used, or at least the ones that were supposed to be used during the Fort McMurray wildfires. Possibly one of the most in-depth sections featured in this report is the timeline of events, uh, where down to the minute information has been recorded in detail, while still retaining the focus on provincial actions. This is a must-read for anyone who didn't live through the event, and it really shows how quickly this fire went from just another forest fire to a complex type 1 multi-jurisdictional multi-agency disaster requiring a provincial state of emergency and then some $8 billion worth of resources to combat and, and recover from. And now, the meat and potatoes of the report. The good, the bad, the ugly, what was done right, and what could have been done better. The lessons successfully learned section focuses, as far as I can tell, on the degree to which AIMA has implemented the changes recommended in KPMG's report on the Slave Lake fire. So a very comparable uh, situation and report. Um, and the usual suspects are in here. So enhanced support to local authorities, some improvements in internal command and control that have happened since 2011. But while most of the successes are kind of vague, uh, it specifically commands the use of the Alberta Emergency Alert System, which was updated in 2011 and saw a lot of success and a lot of use during this event. And then there are other recommendations. All told, KPMG brought forward 21 recommendations, which are presented as they apply to prevention, preparedness, response, stabilization, and recovery. Although this is a good way of looking at and understanding them, we think there's three recurring themes throughout the document that most, if not all, of the recommendations will fall under, which is the way we've chosen to organize it uh, for this review. So the general themes we've identified are, one, clarifying and improving the internal provincial governance and EM process. Two, strengthening relationships and providing increased support for local authorities. And three, the importance of clear command and control processes.
So let's get started with the first theme. And this is the internal processes theme for the Alberta Emergency Management Agency and for the government of Alberta in general. There were several suggestions and recommendations that fit into this theme. And a lot of them had to do with increased understanding of the government of Alberta, roles, responsibilities, authorities, and some of the legislation in there as well. So increasing the interplay of different agencies but also the internal structure of AEMA and the Alberta government. So one of the major points here uh, was having a good, solid understanding of all the various acts and how they interplay. So they reviewed some of the uh, acts like the Emergency Management Act, um, the Environmental Protection and Enhancement Act, and even the Occupational Health and Safety Act for how they had some interplay and some different uh, levels of, of authority. So what I found interesting here is then they went through all the government jurisdictions. And in Alberta, we happen to fall under the Ministry of Municipal Affairs as far as emergency management goes. While as in BC, it's under the Ministry of Transport and Infrastructure. In Saskatchewan, it's the, the Ministry of uh, Government Relations. And I found this interesting because if you go back to our initial episode where we were talking about the history of emergency management in Canada, this is a recurring theme. Where does emergency management fit in government uh, ministries and offices? So when it was the civil defense era, we were under the uh, Ministry of Pensions and National Health. So we have come a long way. We're getting closer. But you can imagine that these different ministries might not play well if we had an interjurisdictional, interprovincial emergency, which wildfires could very easily become. So many of the recommendations were geared to clarifying the government roles, the various, various ministries that were responsible, uh, and maybe even making some changes to the acts if they don't fit the current operating environment. The second major part of this theme of internal processes was building frameworks and planning processes. So to date, there are no provincial uh, hazard risk analyses that has been done. There is no provincial resiliency strategy. There is no provincial evacuation framework. And there's little to no recovery or re-entry planning strategies that exist at a provincial level. Furthermore, emergency social services still needs a little bit of work to be put into operation. These gaps were identified and how they played into uh, the Fort McMurray wildfires often had came down to um, empowering decision making at a local level. So instead of trying to scramble to find the experts you need, trying to scramble to find the criteria uh, and the direction needed to make these decisions, it would be good to have it in advance. Good review, Grayson. And I think the part about emergency social services was quite interesting because the provincial framework had just been developed. Uh, so this is really its first trial by fire, no pun intended. So the next theme is really the external aspects of the disaster. So some of the key recommendations were uh, firstly to invest in prevention programs. Disasters are expensive. We know from research done around the Sendai framework that for every $1 invested, you get a $7 return on investment in terms of uh, potential offset recovery costs. And 
one of the key programs in terms of the wildfire interface that's used in Alberta and in many other jurisdictions is the FireSmart program. And in fact, $45 million was allocated in the 2017 budget in Alberta to continue FireSmarting efforts, which is uh, aimed at uh, decreasing the vulnerabilities of communities at the wildfire interface, meaning people that live near uh, heavily forested areas. Uh, one of the direct quotes from the report says, disaster prevention programs can no longer be viewed as discretionary and must receive an appropriate proportion of investment relative to the impacts of these programs uh, that they're intended to mitigate. So I think that is a um, realization in Alberta that has been uh, maturing over, uh, certainly over the last 10 years as uh, several large type 1 incidents have happened in Alberta. Uh, you know, starting back to, to Slave Lake, maybe that wasn't the type 1 incident, but certainly a, a major incident. And I think we're seeing some maturity in terms of our uh, mitigation and, and prevention programs. The, one of the other recommendations is to, to continue to invest in public awareness and prevention programs. And this d deals more around evacuations and what to do in a disaster. Uh, We've talked on the show before that, you know, is the 72-hour emergency kit really uh, all we should be uh, promoting during Emergency Preparedness Week? What are the other key messages that are important? And certainly uh, for a community that's risk is, is very evident uh, in terms of wildfire, what sort of wildfire messaging uh, would be appropriate for populations? Another recommendation was building capacity of local authorities. So there are tools in Alberta to allow municipalities um, to help develop their local emergency plans. There's a provincial uh, templates and um, examples of uh, municipal emergency plans and a, and a computer system that helps emergency planners develop those. The report says these types of tools should be flushed out and enhanced to uh, really develop more robust local plans, which again is nice to see less of a top-down approach and more of a, a local approach because of course we know all disasters are local. Another recommendation was to enhance interoperability. So this really comes down to the increased use of both a liaison officer and information officer role. And I thought it was interesting that the report quoted specifically some of the mantra from the ICS Canada uh, training in terms of how these roles ought to be used and really what a robust information officer position looks like and what sort of resources should be allocated to that. How do different EOCs talk to each other? So how should a regional uh, emergency operations center talk to a provincial operations center? What sort of reports are used? Um, how, how do the formal and informal communication lines work between those entities? And in this case, there was uh, multiple EOCs and, and multiple uh, incident command posts. And that ICS uh, interface in terms of the command post and the EOC is always uh, a dangerous part of any incident. Um, that's where the dragons be, so to speak. So it was nice to see that this was highlighted as a, an area where uh, additional work needs to be done. And I think refining that flow of communication more formally um, is, is something we don't do a lot of in, in routine disaster planning. And speaking of ICS, that moves us nicely into the command and control theme for the recommendations. Uh, one of the major recommendations was that the province mandate and implement ICS amongst local authorities uh, and municipalities. So this is something that has been suggested before and I think is, is slowly being worked on. But as Josh was pointing out, some of the failings had to do with uh, not fully understanding how different elements fit into ICS and they identify a lack of authority, 
uh, clarification, role clarification, which could be addressed by further implementing ICS. One of the quotes that stuck with me the most was that, quote, the different approaches to management and command across organizations and the varying levels of understanding of ICS made it difficult to work together to achieve a proper chain of command and unity of command during the wildfire. And I think ICS was definitely uh, used uh, during this response, and a lot of the successes from the response were due to some clear common training and common terminology. But it's always a work in, in progress, and, and most people, even experienced veteran uh, incident commanders, uh, rarely um, have a lot of type 1 incident experience. So uh, Alberta's had multiple uh, major incidents in the past few years, and I think we are seeing a maturity of our use of ICS, but the report's basically saying there's still work to be done. And unlike our American counterparts, ICS isn't mandated uh, in Alberta, and that's one of the, the other recommendations that Grayson was talking about. Uh, clearly the report is saying that ICS ought to be a mandatory prerequisite for um, emergency management uh, planning and maybe even go as far as tying dollars to whether or not a, a municipality is implementing an ICS system. This is going to be contentious. Not everybody believes that ICS is the best system for an EOC specifically. Uh, there's other systems in use in Canada and other uh, ways of using quote-unquote modified ICS. Um, so this will be interesting to see how this uh, recommendation is uh, received by the EM community. So other recommendations relating to command and control revolved around the POC, the Provincial Operations Center. So a lot of work has been done to update the POC and bring it uh, technologically into the 20th century, but there still requires a, a lot more work. So increasing the capabilities of the, the POC, as well as identifying a clear procedure to de-escalate the POC uh, were identified as recommendations for future action. Yeah, so we've all heard the phrase that, you know, demobilization begins at the beginning of an incident. But what does that mean in terms of real terms when you've got a complex incident that, that's evolving? So the idea is to develop some predefined triggers or at least some guidance to know when escalation is needed. Because uh, uh, the whole of government approach, which is a full POC activation, meant that there was a lot of uh, human resources uh, in the actual building. And to the point that the POC had to uh, have ACO trailers or portable trailers brought in um, outside and basically be the spillover area for the EOC because not everybody could fit into the room. So do you really need all of the key stakeholders? What ministries are taking the lead and, and which ministries maybe have less to do? What's interesting is the choice of reference standards for command and control. So KPMG referenced hev heavily one of the ISO standards, the in uh, International Standards Organization. Specifically, one of the ISO standards deals with societal security, and it manage talks about emergency management requirements for incident response. The standard is ISO 22320. For those not familiar, this is a general standard that talks about all the key elements of a successful command and control system. And a lot of the things carry over uh, to the mantra of ICS and some of the core principles of ICS, but the standard doesn't necessarily reference the ICS system. It's interesting, I, I wasn't really familiar with this standard beforehand, but I can see the applicability. Yeah, and I think one of the overall themes that we're seeing here is about authorities. So all the way from understanding how the transfer of authorities work and who's responsible for what within the legislation, which really came to light during the reentry process when it it's just wasn't clear who was in charge 
of setting a standard for re-entry? Was it health? Was it water? Was it AIMA? Um, so predetermining those authorities and understanding the various roles within uh, the larger organization is, is critical before the event happens. And for full disclosure, one of my roles in Fort McMurray was actually looking at re-entry criteria. So I, I think this is a great recommendation because uh, it was difficult trying to figure out a useful standard. Uh, there are occupancy standards from a public health perspective for safety. There's occupants, uh, occupancy standards from a safety codes perspective. Um, when you're trying to come up with a single standard to use to decide when it's safe and when it's not safe for people to return, um, the devil is in the details. So having a predetermined determined uh, list of criteria would have been useful um, because everybody was kind of hedging a little bit referencing different standards and uh, there was some misaligned accountabilities. One of the other recommendations talks specifically about the role of the Office of the Fire Commissioner which is the provincial organizing body for uh, the Alberta Fire Service, all the municipal fire departments. And the report says that the OFC ought to have some sort of inventory of all provincial fire assets, meaning that when a mutual aid request comes in, that there would be some sort of central body to know exactly what resources are available in each municipality and being able to, to centrally dispatch all these resources. Um, it's an interesting idea. I can see some issues with the logistics of that, but right now there, there's no such body in the province and there's no central list of all the fire apparatus that exist so it's more of an ad hoc process uh, he's basically talking to the larger municipalities and knowing what resources are available and then putting in requests uh, through logistics to, to fill uh, fill those requests so one of the recommendations again about increasing the role of the office of the fire commissioner to be able to better facilitate um, mutual aid uh, resource deployments between fire departments so a fairly comprehensive list of recommendations, really. Uh, and I think a good approach to understanding Alberta's emergency management direction over time is to compare this report and its recommendations to similar reports. So in 2012, KPMG did do the Slave Lake Fires After Action Report. And the good news is, if you hold them up side by side, they are not carbon copies. In fact, a number of the recommendations brought forward in 2012 were hailed as strengths in the response for the 2016 uh, Fort Mac wildfires. So some of the similarities were the usual suspects. Role clarity and chain of command clarity came up in 2012. Empowering and supporting local authorities came up as an area for improvement in 2012. Enhancing interoperability came up. And these are all things that I think it's safe to say we will be working on improving until the end of time. Very specifically, however, evacuation, re-entry, and recovery planning frameworks were called for in 2012 and again in 2017 and identified as something that has not yet even begun. So, something to improve in the future. After reading the report, we found uh, we had a few unanswered questions. So first of all, how are the standards used in this report selected? Uh, some of them are the obvious frameworks, like Emergency Management Framework for Canada, and some of the guiding documents at the provincial level. Uh, you could argue that some of the other standards referenced may not be as relevant and uh, there weren't any pre-disaster claims that we were following uh, these other standards so testing ourselves against them in a, a post-incident analysis uh, might be less useful but the uh, certainly the ISO standard and others uh, are, are useful documents in terms of uh, trying to quantify best practices. 
Yeah, there were also a couple of instances where the response was compared to responses in Australia or BC, and I'm not sure where they were drawing the applicability. Uh, certainly, it's good for the comparison, but is a, an Australian standard something we can feasibly enforce in, in Canada? I don't know. So the second question that we were left with has to do with ICS. So there was a lot of talk about implementing ICS more formally and setting aside the ICS debate for a moment, which might be another podcast. We noticed that within the report, there was a lot of terminology that was not ICS compliant. So this is either a reflection of the, the terminology that was used during the disaster, which would sort of strengthen their point that ICS wasn't used, or is it a reflection of the author's familiarity with ICS? I don't know the answer to that. So, and A lot of these recommendations speak to a more traditional centralized approach to EM. The term standardization is thrown around a lot and there's a real focus on improving legislative processes. So are these recommendations really in line with disaster theory? If we think about what we know about understanding complexity science in terms of disasters, you can make an argument that maybe what you need in a complex disaster is different than what you need in a complicated disaster, meaning that your responses change based on the level of complexity. And a, a standardized top-down approach might not always be the best fit. Yeah, And a lot of their recommendations had to do with frameworks. And they explicitly said that these would be guiding documents that would help empower local decision-making and not overtake local authority. However, whenever I hear the word standards or whenever I... Uh, I hear recommendations to adhere to one particular format, such as ICS. I worry about the loss of creativity. I worry about ignoring some of the lessons learned in past disasters where failure of imagination, for example, in Katrina was, was deemed one of the, the largest things. And I worry about going backwards in time to this command and control system that just doesn't apply to current complex uh, emergencies. So finally, did the report do what it set out to do? I think yes. I think it set out its its arcs very well. Uh, it defined the focus of, of the report, and it really did just focus on the provincial and to some extent the regional involvement in uh, the Fort McMurray wildfires. Again, it is not the definitive report. I wouldn't recommend taking this uh, on its own and then thinking you know all about the Fort McMurray wildfires, uh, but it fulfilled its its commitments and uh, in that respect it is a good report. Yeah, I think some of the key lessons in terms of uh, formalizing how uh, municipalities communicate with each other, what sort of common reporting uh, should be used, delegations of authority, all those sort of things I think are valuable lessons learned. The uh, report also spoke quite a bit about other groups we didn't really mention today but some of the First Nations and uh, NGOs that were involved in the response. There's some interesting insights if uh, if you're involved in those types of agencies uh, that you might also find uh, useful in the appendix. So overall, this is a fairly high-level report with a focus on the province. However, there are a few important take-homes for all emergency management professionals. First off, the importance of understanding jurisdictions and the roles and responsibilities before an event happens. I think we can all relate to the confusion in the chain, chain of command and who's responsible for what, and really hashing that out before was a major theme in this report and very applicable, I think, to all levels of emergency management. The second big take-home that we identified was the importance of testing technologies and processes used between different agencies during exercises and planning, so again, before the event happens. And lastly, the ability to integrate into an ICS structure by EM 
persons at all levels. So moving forward, if you're interested, AEMA has put out a response to the report in which they state that work has begun on 16 out of 21 of the recommendations. And in that report, they actually have a bit more insight into how the recommendations will actually be carried out. So the, the practical application of these more general theoretical recommendations. I have to praise the province for uh, being so open in terms of uh, making the report public. I think it is useful for all EM professionals to have uh, access to reports after any major Major, uh, review and, and that's how we get better collectively and the, the authors were clear to say nothing in this report was supposed to be about blame or uh, any negative thing it's really everyone's desire to improve and, and, and I think that, you know coming at it from that perspective is important to keep in mind some people are always going to be a bit defensive uh, anytime there's critiques of their response and we have to acknowledge that disaster response can be traumatizing so I think having some sensitivity is important but overall uh, definitely th this is how we get better as a as an industry and how we get better as a professionals and that's all for this episode of epic podcast thank you very much for listening you've been listening to an epic podcast production as always this production is designed as a supplementary educational tool for the emergency management professional and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not in any way represent the agencies or organizations that myself or josh are employed by or may be a part of for more information about the show or the people on it, please visit our website at epicpodcast.ca and feel free to follow us on Facebook at Epic Podcast, all one word, or send us a tweet at username Epic Podcast. Until then, I'm Josh. And I'm Grayson. This has been Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. Current, relevant, Canadian. <laughs>